0: This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Melba Pearson. Melba is now Deputy Director of ACLU Florida, but for two decades was an assistant state attorney in Miami-Dade County, and she unsuccessfully challenged a 27-year incumbent for state attorney last year. So welcome to our show.
1: Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to our discussion today.
0: So what was the experience like of actually challenging an incumbent, a long time entrenched incumbent prosecutor?
1: Well, (laughs) it was definitely not what I planned. Um, And just one small correction, I'm actually the director of policy and programs for the Center for the Administration of Justice that's housed at Florida International University. And I'm happy to chat a little bit more about the work we're doing around data and transparency and prosecution later on. But to answer your question with regards for running for office, you know, it was one of those things where I'm a huge fan of the show Scandal, of House of Cards. So, you know, when you kind of watch those those shows, you're thinking, okay, politics is a dirty game. There's, you know, lots of things to consider, you know, you have to be able to handle crises and, and understand that the media may sometimes um, take certain sound bites, take it out of context, and now you've got to be on the defensive, right? But what I really wasn't expecting was the level, in some ways, of vitriol and of false information that really spread like wildfire about what I stood for, who I was, etc. But the good thing that Was very, you know, very positive about the experience was that I got to meet so many amazing people uh, around the county and got to talk about issues that were of concern to so many people, yet they felt that they weren't being heard. So I think my candidacy, in a lot of ways, gave people a lot of hope. Um, gave people motivation either to run themselves or to hold their elected officials accountable in a different and more forceful way. Um, But, you know, it was definitely a huge undertaking. Uh, The coronavirus uh, pandemic did not help because literally I announced my campaign in January of 2020. uh, And by March, we were locking things down and couldn't, do the grassroots campaigning that I wanted to do knocking door to door and really engaging with the voters on a personal level so I had to pivot to use social media which in some ways was good it kind of both even the playing field for both of us since she had a war chest of like a million dollars and you know, I'm the scrappy newcomer, daughter of immigrants, <laughs> you know, there was no war trust for me. It was, you know, begging for every dollar to, to make things happen. But, you know, it, it definitely presented a different challenge. But again, I think we we're really able to raise awareness and uh, show people the importance of this seat and why they should be engaged.
0: So as a longtime prosecutor in the Miami area, I mean, what, what did you learn about the criminal legal system?
1: Unfortunately, I, le- I already knew, but uh, it was reinforced in some ways how broken the system can be. Uh, when we look at the issues around bail and we look at how long cases take to move through the system where people will be sitting in custody three, four years and they're not violent or even if they are violent. Why should a case linger for three, four years? Because that means that a survivor of crime or a family that's not getting justice. And on the flip side, if the person is in fact innocent, you know, they're sitting in custody for something that they didn't do. And that flies in the face of the American concept of innocence until proven guilty. So that was problematic. Um, I saw firsthand the problems with regards to, you know, certain elements within law enforcement and how you have, for instance, uh, in the city of Miami, you have basically an avowed racist who ended up running the Fraternal Order of Police, one of the police unions down here and, You know, the city of Miami had paid out almost a million dollars in settlements for all of his excessive use um, uh, incidents where he was literally breaking people's bones, all black and brown people, yet he still has a job, was never prosecuted. Right. You look at some other elected officials who uh, did all sorts of inappropriate, illegal and unethical things, and they've never had to answer for any of their actions and up until and including last night's election results, where you have someone who was, you know, who was extremely sexist, who, you know, has horrible views of Uh, of women and minorities and, and all of that. And he won by a landslide. So, you know, that lack of accountability is something that is extremely problematic and leads to, you know, corruption being able to flourish and for people to not trust the system, which in turn results in communities that are less safe. And it results in just problems all around and real issues not being addressed.
0: What do you you see overall as the biggest problem in the system?
1: The biggest problem in the system? Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, Can I give like my top three? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So first of all, police accountability, I think is a very big problem. Because of the strength of the police unions, and to be very clear, I'm I'm a union daughter. My mother uh, was a member of uh, 1199, the Health and Hospital Workers Union, when I was growing up in New York. I definitely see the value of unions. I've seen it up close. But at the same token, in order for a union to maintain their credibility, they also have to have a balance between protecting their members and also stepping away when their member did something inappropriate. Right. So like, for instance, if you look at a doctor's union, you know, just random example, let's say you have a doctor's union. If a doctor keeps having patients die on the table, the union is not going to go to bat for them. Right. They're going to distance themselves and try to find a way to show the person out the door. Right. And so I think if, you know, police unions were, able to do that, you know, for instance, as we saw with Derek Chauvin, the police union in Minneapolis, you know, basically backed him, right? So, you know, seeing that sort of, of, of activity, again, creates a lack of trust in the system. So I think that's one very big issue. I think when we look at the issue of bail reform, um, I think that's, that's a huge issue, especially again with the concept of innocent until proven guilty, yet you end up sitting in custody, losing your livelihood, you know, whatever job you may have, losing your housing, being separated from your family, and you haven't been convicted of a crime. So that to me is is, is a huge issue and very problematic. And I think we struggle to find the right solution for it. So, you know, we think through, okay, maybe using risk assessments, so that way, You know, we look at that information and it's not about how much money is in your pocket. It's whether or not you pose a risk to the community. Well, the problem is if it uses biased information because the person lives in a neighborhood that's over policed, that's going to increase their risk index to a point that a judge will feel the need to not give them month. So, again, we still have to figure out what is the best way way to uh, approach bail reform in a way that we're keeping communities safe, but we're also upholding the values of innocent until proven guilty. So I view that as a very big issue. And I also um, view lack of funding to be a big issue. Um, More importantly, investing in communities, investing in programs that work, investing in rehabilitation programs within the prison system so that when people come out or, or end their involvement in the criminal justice system, that they have addressed the underlying drivers that got them in, because that's the key to reducing recidivism. If you're not addressing the underlying issue, if the person is unhoused and you end up arresting them for vagrancy, for trespass, whatever, okay, they get back out in two days, they're still unhoused. You have not addressed the underlying issue. So now they're going to keep coming back and then people complain, oh, the system is a revolving door, this and that. There's a revolving door because we've done nothing to make sure that the door stops, you know? So I I look at that as one of the big issues because of the fact, and it's something I witnessed as a prosecutor, where, you know, uh, especially, you know, being here in Florida, uh, we've had so many Republican administrations that will slash the budget in order to, you know, in, in, in the name of being fiscally responsible. But then when things are better, And there's more, we're more flush with money, they don't replace the money that's been slashed. And the programs that are always on the chopping block are the ones that are rehabilitative in nature, right? It's it's not the police budget that's ever on the chopping block, right? It's not the prosecutor's budget necessarily. Um, You know, they may take a little bit from schools, but it's always those rehabilitation programs within the prison, within communities that are being funded and effective that funding gets slashed. And when money comes back, they don't now, oh, okay, we took $100,000 away from you know this particular community, let's give it back so they can rebuild the work that they were doing. They don't do that. So real robust investment in programs, whether it be through uh, foundations doing it through from a philanthropy, a philanthropic lens, or from the government investing, knowing that this is going to result in safer communities, you know, I view that to be a very big issue.
0: So you mentioned, you know, policing, obviously, last year, right in the middle of your campaign, uh, the death of George Floyd, and of course, a whole bunch of others. Um, you know, have we learned anything from this? Or it was that just kind of a moment that's now Past us.
1: <sighs> well, I mean, I hate to say it. I don't think we learned a ton. I think that, uh, and that's evidenced by how the George Floyd Policing Act stalled in, you know, past Congress stalled in the Senate, um, you know, can't actually, let me rephrase that, um, it basically stalled in Congress, you know, period, right? Um, so we didn't see any robust legislation to address issues in policing. Um, we see a few um, smaller incentive initiatives where it's like, okay, well, let's give police departments more money for training. This isn't a training issue. Right. You know, keeping your knee on someone's neck for nine minutes flies in the, the face of common sense. I mean, that, that, that you can't train somebody not to do that. That's either you're someone who, um, you know, is just an out and out racist or you're just a violent person or you just have a power trip. That's a hiring issue. So that is something that has to be addressed which is not being addressed in any way shape or form um i look at all the huge corporations that posted a black square on social media and said you know we are committed to helping communities of color and people of color and we're going to stand by you in solidarity and we're going to invest and we're going to help i believe it was the washington post that recently did a report that, you know, that clearly indicated that many of these corporations have not lived up to their promises and didn't donate any money or then donated a minuscule amount of money to different, um, you know, uh, black and brown and minority led organizations that are doing social justice work. So, you know, I think it was a moment in time. I think it did raise some awareness. It did validate the lived experiences of so many. But to say that sustained change is going to come from it, I, I, unfortunately, I hate to say it. At this point, I don't see it.
0: Um, and I'm also kind of curious, uh, you know, for some reason, recently I was reading about the riots in Miami in 1980 um, after uh, the cops beat McDuffie to death. Uh, Did that leave lasting change in Miami or or is Miami kind of like everywhere else at this point?
1: Uh, I don't believe that it led to any lasting change. Uh, Again, it was that moment in time where people were incredibly upset and concerned. um, But the one legacy it left is that no police officer has ever been charged since for the murder of a civilian.
0: So Period. not much has changed. Um, nope, nope. Um, so, I mean, overall, after your experience, would you say you're an optimist or a pessimist on in, in terms of the ability for the system to change?
1: Well, listen, I, I, I've got to remain hopeful because as long as there's life, there's hope. That's what my mother always used to tell me. And if we get to the point of pessimism that nothing is ever going to change, we can't make any progress, then we're not even going to try. And then we're just going to sit in place and lament and, and, and complain and nothing's going to happen. So I have to remain optimistic because that gives me the ability to wake up each day and keep trying. So, so I mean, for, for my sanity, I have to be an optimist. Could be misplaced, but, you know, I think that, you know, I'm encouraged, you know, for instance, again, you know, we had elections last night and we saw progressive candidates, people of color, you know, win mayors races, win city council races around the country. So, you know, there's pockets of progress. And I think we have to hold tight to those successes that we see and try to build on that to the best of our ability and know that there's some places we're never gonna change. But if we can make certain uh, jurisdictions, cities, communities better and hold them up as a shining light of this is what can be accomplished, then more people I think would take the chance of electing different leaders and embracing Uh, different options on how best to make our system more just more fair and more equitable for everyone I describe
0: myself as being on a roller coaster and (laughs) sometimes I feel like uh things are getting better and sometimes I feel like things are getting worse and it could change in a second right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um I don't know I, I I came up with that one last week um you know, it was it's
1: accurate. <laughs> it's accurate.
0: <laughs> um, last week we uh, had Jonathan Rapping from uh, uh, Gideon's Promise uh, on mm. one of our webinars, and he made an interesting point that you know he doesn't believe that uh, changing prosecution is really the key to criminal justice reform. Um, He he thinks they can change it on the margins, and he's certainly not opposed to electing progressive prosecutors, but, you know, he he feels like, you know, systemic change has to come from outside of the prosecutorial system. Um, As somebody who's been out inside and is now outside, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I think outside pressure is necessary. Uh, Absolutely. Because... You know, the one thing that people forget is that prosecutors, public defenders, mayors, all of them are elected. And so we, the people, have the opportunity to make a different decision every four years if we find that our elected official is not aligned with our values. And the way we do that is to stay engaged, stay educated, and really watch what's going on. So I think that that outside pressure is going to be important to be able to show and give political cover to, let's say we elect a progressive prosecutor, if let's say the police chief and the mayor and other people are fighting them then the public has to be the ones to step up the voters and say listen no we elected this person to do this job either you get out of the way or we're going to vote you out next time around right so i I think there's a lot of that but i definitely don't want to downplay the role that the public defender and the elected prosecutor plays in all of this right because at the end of the day They don't, they have a lot of power, but they don't have sweeping power. Right. So, you know, I think sometimes people don't understand the role of a prosecutor um, and, and not in a bad way. It's just that, you know, if you've never been involved in the system, you've never really had a reason to think very deeply about it. Right. But You know, people often miss that when it comes to the types of charges filed, whether or not diversion programs are going to be uh, central to uh, rehabilitation in your community, whether problem solving courts are something that's going to be a center in your community, whether or not, you know, your Uh, elected prosecutor is going to prioritize low level crimes versus violent felonies or vice versa. Like all of that is within their power, whether or not their folks are going, their line prosecutors are going to ask for bail or not. You know, so these are all very critical things that can only come from the prosecutor's office. And the same thing with your elected public defender, you know, again, how are they approaching cases? Are they going to fight back with regards to excessive caseload so that they actually have the ability to work and function and give each client the attention they deserve, right? You know, that they're fighting to make sure that the salaries are on par so that they can keep experienced public defenders so that they're able to help their clients in, in, in a more robust way. You know, so I think, I think that outside pressure is important, but I also think that we have to place, you know, we have to be very cognizant of the role of everybody in the system, and make sure to hold them accountable accordingly.
0: Um, and as a prosecutor, what did you find to be the most difficult part of your job?
1: Oh, there were a lot of difficult, difficult parts of my job. Um, I think that, you know, first of all, just doing the job itself, right? Because you only encounter people, they only come to you in the worst moment of their life. Or you're helping them work through the worst moment of their life. So that was often difficult and bringing home sometimes the tertiary trauma that comes from hearing all of these stories, it weighs on you, right? So that's that, that very tough. It's very tough on your psyche. It's very tough emotionally. Um, you know, you put it to the side, but it's there. It's always there. Um, so that was difficult. Um, sometimes dealing with the internal politics and realizing that, you know, while you're trying to do the right thing, there's often other agendas at play that you have to navigate. You know, and it's also the same as any other job from that perspective, right? There's always internal politics, but you know, when you have people's lives and liberty at stake, it takes on a new level of significance and urgency, right? Um, so I would say those were the, the, the toughest parts of my job, I think.
0: Um, and then, you know, looking again at the kind of the bigger system, you know, from your perspective now, how how can we end mass incarceration
1: it's it's going to have to take it's not going to happen overnight that's first and foremost right because i think A lot of folks are very impatient, and rightfully so. You know, being like, "Listen, you know, we elected, uh, you know, a a Democratic president, or we elected, you know, a a progressive uh, state attorney, district attorney, you know, Commonwealth attorney." Um, Okay, mass incarceration should be done in a year, (laughs) right? And and it's like, no, it's it didn't get here overnight. It's not going to disappear overnight. I think it has to start with number one, you know, prosecutors. Only prioritizing the most violent cases, and I don't just necessarily mean. And I'm not trying to besmirch you know anybody's experience or anything they've been through, but like you know the burglary of a business that's unoccupied, I don't consider to be violent, right? But but obviously if you you know you rob someone at gunpoint, you uh, sexually assault someone, you. You know you you shoot someone you kill someone you know th- those are to me are violent felonies and that's where the attention should be placed right those lower level felonies to me clog up the jail system and that's one of the biggest drivers of mass incarceration um secondly i think that there, it's not just only within the prosecutors and defense attorneys and all of that you have to address some of the other societal factors, right? Because we have to do things like make sure people have jobs, make sure people are having uh, a solid education, that kids aren't getting bullied in school, that kids aren't, you know, um, because they end up having a fight or something like that. Next thing you know, the police come and they're on the school to prison pipeline, right? So we have to make sure that our educational system is not failing our kids. We have to make sure that people have the ability to make a living. We have to make sure that there's at least a $15 minimum wage, if not more, that people are being paid a livable wage so that, you know, they're they're not doing and committing crimes out of desperation to feed themselves and their families, you know? Um, So all of that has to happen. Um, And then we have to make sure we're investing in mental health and making sure that people aren't stressing out over trying to afford their medicine and that they have the ability to go to a facility if they need to, to get a reset or whatever the case may be. Same thing with addiction. It should only, it shouldn't be, oh, if you're wealthy, you can go to this beautiful retreat in Delray Beach where you can walk on the beach and play a guitar and, you know, and that's your rehab, right? Like, and I'm not feast it. it. Like, they have great rehab programs that incorporate a lot of different holistic techniques, but that's generally reserved for the wealthy right? most of those places don't even take insurance. So if you're someone struggling with addiction, who works at a big box store, you know, how do you get that opportunity to go to a beautiful, robust um, center that you can help address your addiction, right? So there's all these other multi-pronged things that we need to address as the drivers that push people into the criminal justice system. And then once we address that, I think we'll all, and then also at the same time, address the types of crimes that cause someone to go to prison as in in not focusing on your grand thefts, your petty thefts, your misdemeanors, your lower level felonies, but focusing on those that commit the most violent offenses. Then we're gonna see, I think a dramatic decrease in the people that are in the system. And as we continue to help work with people that have suffered trauma, right? Because the one thing I always like to say is the defendant of today is the victim survivor of tomorrow and the victim survivor of today could be the defendant of tomorrow. Because if you've got hurt and unresolved trauma, hurt people hurt people. And so if you're not addressing that underlying trauma, then you're, you're not going to see the outcomes that we, that we want. So that's uh-huh. sort of, you know, yeah.
0: I, I think the last point you made is extremely important and it really gets overlooked. I, I was reading somewhere where somewhere around 70 or 80% of women who end up incarcerated uh, were actually previously victims of pretty serious sexual assaults or batteries mm-hmm. or thing, or domestic violence and things like that. And And so the failure of The system to take care of those victims ends up uh, driving uh, mass incarceration in the long term. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which is, you know, part of the problem is that we don't deal with trauma in our society. You know, we get, you know, we have people walking around with untreated mental illness. They've been abused. Um, you know, they don't have a good education, they're living in poverty, and we're surprised that they're turning to crime.
1: Mhm. Really? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um,
0: shameful. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that, but that's where we are as a society is that for so long, we decided that the solution is to throw somebody in a cage for a long period of time and hope that they figure it out.
1: Mm hmm. hmm. Yeah, we saw. I mean, listen, it's just the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. We went through this during the crack epidemic. And it was okay, if we just imprison every crack dealer, right, that that's going to make our community safer and better. Well, we ended up reaping the benefits of that in the 90s and now when you had a whole generation of kids that grew up without their you know parent in the home and you know all of these other issues and now that manifests unfortunately in criminal behavior so again you know, we didn't learn from how we went wrong in the 80s. And, you know, now I I do recognize, obviously, there's a push towards mental, uh, so mental health courts and other problem-solving courts. There's definitely a push around diversion and other, uh, you know, restorative justice techniques and, uh, you know, looking at healing and trauma-informed work and all of that. But still, You'll have those pockets of folks who are very like tough on crime and the default position is, well if we had more police and if we you know people got longer sentences, that would fix what's going on. And it's like, no, we tried that. It didn't work. <laughs> you know it didn't work. You're kicking the can down the road and you're gonna reap the benefits of that in 10 years. So that's not a solution.
0: The DA where I live in California, Um, recently uh, proposed the idea of uh, charging someone who has dealt uh, opioids, uh, probably fentanyl, to someone, and they die uh, Mm -hmm. with murder, Um, which, of course, we've been trying for like, I don't know, 20 or 30 years now, Um, and it doesn't work very well uh, because you end up getting mostly just the low-level people because, you know, there, there's no uh, source tracking of uh, illegal drugs, um, mm. and uh, you end up getting somebody uh, who's probably had nothing to do with it. Um, and also, you know, it, it just it, it's dealing with the problem on the wrong end, as you said. You know, if you get rid of all the dealers. And you have a whole bunch of addicts and people that uh, are addicted to uh, a substance. They're, there's a demand
1: out there. Somebody's going to fill it. Exactly. I mean, it's simple economics. It's supply and demand. As long as there's always a demand, someone will step up to supply. So that's why the, the key is to address the addiction and make sure that people can walk away and become clean and sober. And then that way, you know, those who deal drugs are like, oh, well, this isn't profitable. I gotta find something else to do. Right. And 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 that kind of you know helps address the issue. And, you know, when it comes to charging people with homicide for an overdose, again, not not helpful because what happens? Somebody overdoses and they're like, you're witness it and you're like, well, I don't want to be charged with murder. So you run away and you leave the person to die. As opposed to, if that charge was not in place, a person might be a little bit more motivated to call nine one one, or you know, to, to you know, to call uh, medical personnel to be able to get that person the help they need so that they can survive. So it, it's just very misguided all around. Very misguided. Um, so I do want to uh, pivot
0: here since we're uh, running out of time. But um, do you want to? Tell us about what you're doing in your current position.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I am the co-manager of a project called the Prosecutorial Performance Indicators. And what we do is that we work with uh, a number of prosecutors' offices across the country, nearly 20 at this point, and we take a look at their case management system and we uh, work with them to identify how healthy the office is. And we do it in a way that is transparent to the public. So what we have is 55 different indicators that we use to measure the health of the office. For so long, it's always been about, well, how many convictions did you get? How big is your caseload? Okay, and that's it in assessing the health of a prosecutor's office. Here, we look at things like how long does it take a line prosecutor to reach out to a survivor of crime? Is that something that happens immediately or are we talking months later? How long does it take a case to move through the system? The American Bar Association recommends that it should only be 120 days. I mean, I can tell you from my work as a prosecutor, I never had a felony case dispose of itself in 120 days, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it's more like years, you <laughs> know, almost feels like 120 years, not days, but, You know, we look at that. We look at how diverse your leadership team is, as well as the line prosecutors. We look at uh, racial disparities and whether or not people in different zip codes uh, are receiving different outcomes, whether it be pleas or sentences after trial. Uh, We look at prosecutorial ethics and, and conviction integrity and all of these different aspects. So we use the prosecutor's office's own data to basically measure what's going on in the office. We then release it publicly on a dashboard that the office maintains so that at any point in time, the residents of that jurisdiction can click on their elected prosecutor's website and see current data with regards to all of the different things that they have chosen to measure. And also, we're engaging the community in these discussions so they can share what things they want to see measure, what questions that they have, what lived experiences that need to be quantified through data, because maybe there's an underlying situation where police are excessively stopping people in one area, resulting in overcriminalization. You know, people may say that, but then it turns into, well, what did you do? And aren't you the problem, et cetera? But when you have that data, when it's there for you in black and white, it is so much harder to dismiss what people say. And then as a result of having that data, we can then help shape policies that can change and address those issues, right? And then you can also use that as a foundation, whether to go to your state capital to fight for more funding uh, or to join other activists and advocacy groups around a particular change that's needed because the data clearly shows that there's a problem in a particular aspect. So, I mean, it's pretty cool. I'm really enjoying it. And, you know, it's just beautiful to be able to try and have an impact in what prosecution looks like around the country and really push for offices to take a data-driven approach, not like, oh, my gut says this or whatever, but a data-driven approach in forming policy, as well as making sure that the community is empowered to see that data, know it, and be able to use it to advocate for the changes they want to see in their community.
0: That's kind of interesting. I've noticed that there are now a few uh, groups that are actually doing similar type of things. I don't know how similar, Um, but it seems like the wave of the future are prosecutors putting all this stuff out on dashboards. Now, you know, as somebody uh, in my line of work, a journalist, uh, you know, that's a great thing because anytime we want to look stuff up, uh, it's readily accessible. Um, but I, you know, I don't know, I, I guess I'm, uh, a bit, uh, skeptical, but I mean, what are your thoughts in terms of actually converting, uh, the transparency into an agent of change?
1: I, well, listen, I, it's all a matter of what your intentions are. Right. Now there's some folks who may put it up there just as a, you know, they select matrix, not within our, our work, but like there may may be, and I'm not trying to besmirch any other organization that's doing the same work. You know, everybody has their place. The work is needed. We have like 2,300 prosecutors offices across the country. So there's plenty of work for everybody. So Mm -hmm. it's not a matter of that, but I think that sometimes some elected prosecutors may pick some very softball metrics that, put, that show them in a good light, right? And the real transparency is when you're showing the good, the bad, the ugly. And you take on the ugly and you say, listen, we've fallen down on the job over here. Let me talk to you about what I'm thinking to be able to address this issue. Let me sit down with stakeholders and community leaders to kind of workshop what could be a good way to address this particular issue. So, you know, transparency is only as good as how intentional you are about it and how and, and, and what your mindset is. If it's just about, I wanna pat myself on the back, that's not true transparency. Transparency is putting it all out on the table, accepting the responsibility for it, and then working towards a way to change it and make it better.
0: Well, I think you nailed it on the last point. So, um, what are your future thoughts in terms of you know your career? Um, are, are you ever going to think about uh, running for office again, or do you not know, or just curious?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, that is definitely the million dollar question. Um, you know, I am not in a place right now where I want to run. Um, I am definitely going to keep an eye on what happens in the 2022 electoral cycle, um, because because you know anything I'm not into suicide missions. <laughs> so <laughs> anything I have to do has to make sense and I have to feel that I can make an impact. If I feel that by me running, um, I'm not going to make an impact. I have no chance of winning. Uh, if the demographics are shifting to the point that it doesn't make sense, then I'm not going to do it. But I really want to see how the different advocacy groups and grassroots groups move. You know, are they able to really galvanize voters around? You know, In Florida, we have a very brutal uh, gubernatorial race coming up with somebody who's very aligned with the last presidential administration. We've got a huge Senate race coming up. Again, with somebody who uh, used, ran for president and is not particularly in love with his job, and you know, um, is certainly not aligned with progressive values. Uh, so I want to see what happens with those races, and if we can't pull it together to mobilize against people who have you know let the pandemic run amok, let people die uh, unnecessarily, and has not been acting in the best interests of our state. Um, you know. If, if we can't galvanize around that and and make a change, then that's really going to impact my thoughts on running going forward. Because again, we've got to have a plan. We've got to have uh, an operation in order to get folks out to vote and to make the changes that we want to see in in the absence of that. I'm not putting myself out there. to you know, go through the personal and professional sacrifice that it takes to run for office.
0: I hear you. well, Keep in touch with us um, because, you know, we've been uh, watching cases all over the country. um, And I wanted to thank you for coming on today.
1: No, thank you so much for having me. And yes, we'll definitely keep in touch. And I look forward to talking again soon. This has been Everyday
0: Injustice. We were talking with Melba Pearson. Uh, She ran for the equivalent of DA. Sorry, it's state attorney in uh, Florida, but uh, DA out here in California for, for those uh, out here. Um, she didn't make it, but uh, she put forth some great ideas and, uh, and she continues to work in the field. So uh, this has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system.